All right, friends, we are wrapping up a series on what the Bible says about uh, women and men, and uh, this was just supposed to be one week on Mother's Day, and it sort of spiraled into something else, and I was going to end it last week, but we had a little vote. Those that showed up on Memorial Day weekend, you know, there's a little bonus for showing up. I said, hey, do you want me to do one more uh, and talk about the marriage piece here, or should we start our new series? And like three or four people raised their hand for the new series and everybody else for <clears throat> what we're going to do today. So don't blame me, okay? All right? All right. Now listen, there's a lot of different viewpoints on what the Bible teaches about husbands and wives, and um, I'm going to give you my perspective. Uh, this is nothing that I hope any of us would divide on, but I'm going to give us an angle that might be a little new for some of us, and I think it's important. What does the Bible really say about husbands and wives? And we're in this series called Family Matters, and I think this is the last week. Um, but some of you who've read the Bible right away, you, if you know the scriptures well, you probably have an idea of maybe some of the verses that are going to deal with husbands and wives in the New Testament, especially the one, the, the dreaded uh, one about submitting, right? Wives, submit to your husbands. And then it follows with the husband is the head of the wife. And so that one has even really confusing. So I just want to start um, here with what does headship mean? And to get us rolling, I found a, a pop quiz from one of my favorite preachers on this. And here's the quiz. There's three answers. There's three choices. And you don't have to answer out loud about what is headship here, okay? But um, uh, unless you really want a good elbow from your spouse, um, in that case, then just answer out loud all you want. All right. So... What, what does headship mean? A, headship means that the husband should retain total control, okay? His wife, his wife should obey as every women desire. I'm not looking for feedback on this, okay? And we do have marriage counselors we can send you to afterwards, but <clears throat> careful. You know, Bruce isn't here, so we'll, we'll leave that to Dalton, right? All right. Uh, the B, the second choice here. Well, the husband should re retain majority control. So it's total control or majority control. Or the ever-popular C, the husband should retain the remote control, yeah? <laughs> All right, well, we'll rewind a little bit. If you haven't been here, feel free to check out the podcast, but we're going to rewind and do a little bit of review. I'll do a little bit of new content. But I want to start with God's original design. We look back at Genesis, and we learned a couple weeks ago that God made both male and female in the image of God. They were both given equal dignity, equal status. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase and fill the earth, rule over it. And that commissioning from God to them of, uh, of their place to steward this planet was given to both male and female. They were to co-labor. They were going to do it equally together. And then in verse 21 of Genesis 2, it says, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now, can you imagine this? Like the first time a man has ever seen a woman, right? God brings Eve to Adam, and he is smitten, right? Like Adam had surgery, and men, none of us have recovered from the effects of it yet, right? Yeah. So he wakes up and says, whoa, 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 wow, and for crying out loud, I mean, he, he just starts reciting poetry, right? Right there, the man said in verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. I mean, this guy is whooped. The first poem ever recorded 
in history and in scripture by a human is right here, Adam being blown away by the beauty of this gift of Eve. And Adam right away recognizes, this isn't like these other creatures that I've been naming that God's been bringing to me up to this point. And he, he says, this is someone like me. Like the poetry here is saying, someone like me created in the image of God. Like I am, she is. And his joy in that moment, at least, is reflective of God's intent for marriage, that, that there would be an experience of great joy and delight, at least, you know, sometimes, right? I'm going to get in trouble for that one. Okay. Um, <laughs> let me set up the next verse, verse 24. Um, culturally, by the way, if two people are going to get together, normally the lower status person will leave their post or their place, even in our day, for appointments and so on. But notice what the text says here, verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, friends, just stopping at this, if God's plan was for the husband to rule over the wife, then I think you would expect the writer of Genesis to say something more along the lines of, a woman shall leave her father's authority and pass now under her, under her husband's authority. Because at the time that Genesis was written, fathers chose who their daughters would marry. There was none of this dating business. Dad just said, hey, that's who you're going to marry, and that's who they'd marry. And some of you with, with daughters, that doesn't sound like a bad system at all, right? Yeah? yeah. And all the daughters did not say amen. But um, the writer here just says, a man will leave his parents and be united or cleave or cling to his wife. The two will become one. And so that doesn't mean that the man is more important or domineering, and it doesn't mean that the woman is either. And I think that the kind of the big insight from this part of the passage is this, that the two will become one flesh, and that, that's the greatest intimacy possible. Now, full disclosure here, there's a lot of well-meaning Christians, a lot of pastors, tons of books, people that are way smarter than me who disagree on this issue and think it totally means something else, but you can find those opinions everywhere. I'm going to give you mine today because I, I have the microphone. So um, <laughs> the best interpretation from both the first two chapters of Genesis shows that God's plan from the beginning that marriage was intended to be a joy-filled partnership between a husband and wife who equally bear the image of God and are equally both charged with stewarding and caring for all of creation. But as we know, and we've looked at the last couple weeks, that didn't happen. Um, so, well, it didn't happen for long because next chapter, chapter 3 of Genesis, we experience what is known as the fall. So in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve chose to sin, chose to reject God. Sin enters into the world. And the very first thing that we see after, after sin is this disillusionment of, uh, of being one. And it just, it just dissolves right there. And there becomes blaming between the two, between a husband and wife right there. So if you're married, by the way, or if you've ever been married, a little mass confession here. Um, how many of you have ever blamed your spouse for something, right? Just come on, just raise your hand. Let's just admission here, right? Yeah, this is a mass confession. Your sins are forgiven, right? Just proof that the, the, the effects of the fall, they're still not done. Well, here, how many of you do blame your spouse, but you're really right about it? They really are wrong, right? Is there some of those as well? Yep. You sure you don't want to do marriage counseling, Isaac? We got a lot of potential coming. All right. All right. So, um, with the fall... 
that, that oneness that was intended is lost. Like death comes as a part of the fall, frustration with work comes as a part of it, pain and childbearing comes. And again, this stuff is all a part of the curse. That's not original design, right? God's original plan, his original design in the first couple of chapters is what we've been reading up to now, but then the curse happens, and that's where in verse 16 it says, you will desire to control your husband, is one translation, you will desire to control your husband, Eve, and he will rule over you. See, now instead of oneness, marriage becomes a grab for power, for domination, for control. There's hierarchy all of a sudden. The battle of the sexes begins at the fall. The whole flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones thing, right? Well, that's just gone. Like, that's not even paid attention to. In fact, it only takes uh, five or six um, generations before this whole oneness thing really gets messed up, and we have the first recorded place where, where there's polygamy in the Bible. And, and there's more than one wife that happens. And not long after that, we start getting provisions for divorce because it's the effects of the fall and the fallen world that we live in. So let's fast forward here. Jesus came, and part of what he came to do was to reverse the curse. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, the, the Pharisees, the religious people, are looking to trick Jesus with a question. And what they're trying to do is get him to say something really bad about um, divorce so that Herod will do maybe to Jesus what got done to John the Baptist, John the Baptist for criticizing uh, Herod about his current marriage ends up getting beheaded eventually. So they're trying to trap Jesus. That's the whole context of that question. But in verse 3, Matthew 19, it says, Some Pharisees came to test Jesus and said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Just trick question, right? That's a trick question. Okay. And Jesus, being brilliant, says to them, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said... For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no, no longer two, but one flesh, and therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, if you remember from some of the past couple weeks here, verses 4 through 6, this idea of two becoming one flesh and them being reminded of what the scripture that they already were experts at reading said, the Pharisees were oppressive to women. I mean, it was like they treated the women like the Taliban treats women. They saw women as evil tempters. They saw women as inferior. And so Jesus, in doing this, he is confronting their superiority and their abuse by reminding them of God's original design, right? To become one. Jesus is saying, hey, women are not inferior because, uh, by the way, you're one with your wife, and this hierarchy thing is not consistent with God's design, whether it goes by the name of hierarchy or, my opinion here, complementarianism, whatever it's called, I believe that the way of followers of Jesus is not a way of exerting power over others, even if you're a benevolent dictator, okay? The way of following Jesus is about power under, what Jesus modeled for us. It's about loving and serving. It's about laying down our preferences and our demands, and then Jesus, with his whole life, he modeled for us what that whole loving and serving power under thing is all about. Philippians 2, which we looked at every week during Lent this year, summarizes what Jesus did in serving and loving really well. It says, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped 
or used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And this passage and others tell us about how Jesus loved and served and laid down his life for us. He didn't grasp for power, but he continually told his followers and shows us what it looks like to come under people by loving and serving instead of trying to control or dominate or decide who the boss is. And if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we are called to walk in that same way in every relationship. Now, as we do around here quite often, uh, we know that it's crucial for us to look back and understand the time and the culture of the people when these letters and scriptures were being written. It helps for us to know what their life was like. And so here, uh, we'll look at that for just a moment. The early church, when these letters and, and what became the New Testament were written, they were under the rule of Rome, under the Roman Empire. And so under the Roman rule, there was the Pax Romana, it's the peace of Rome. And that was a code and a law by which the Roman Empire governed all of these far-flung nations and people groups that were spread all over the place. I mean, that was a lot to keep under control. So how did they keep this peace in, in Rome? By rule of law and force and order. And if you stepped out of line, it was harsh for you. And the Romans knew that in order to keep that quote-unquote peace, um, if you could establish their version of control and order in people's homes, then it would permeate the culture. And so they had what was known as Roman household codes. So the Romans believed that a free man ruled over his household as sovereign, and he exercised unilateral authority over his subordinate wives and children and slaves. So preserving this structure was thought by the government and the people to be crucial in preserving their society and the Roman rule as a whole. So laws made sure that this structure was enforced, and that's just how it worked. Now here's an example of one of these household Roman codes from Aristotle, a Greek philosopher from that day. He wrote, <clears throat> by the way, this is not in the Bible if you're not familiar with the Bible, this is just the, the historian, okay, all right. Um, of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children. For although there might be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female. And all the ladies said, uh-huh, right? I'm with you, okay, don't get mad. <clears throat> the free man, he continues, rules over the slave and another manner from that which the male rules over the female or the man over the child, although the parts of the soul are present in all of them. How benevolent of him. They are present in different degrees, for the slave has no deliberative faculty at all. The woman has it, but it is without authority. And the child has, but it's immature. So nice. I mean, that was the mindset. These Roman codes of the day looked like that, where they would tell everybody where their place was. Husbands, wives, children, slaves, right? That's the mindset. And isn't it great that in our day, men don't say such stupid things anymore, right? That was sarcasm, folks. Okay. <clears throat> 
So Roman household codes are important for us to even know existed before we read some of these things in the New Testament. And in those codes, in summary, men were clearly superior. They were in charge. They were superior to women for sure in the Roman world of, of rule and law. So with that as our backdrop, now let's look at one of those passages that sometimes gives people heartburn, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And this is patterned after how the Roman household codes were written, only there's a big subversive twist. Instead of the man being the center, Jesus is the focus and the center. So here we go. Verse 18, Colossians 3, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and, and, and do it, not only when they're watching you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, Paul, when he writes this, he's riffing on the Roman household codes, but the striking difference is instead of making the man the authority, he's putting Jesus in the middle of it. And Jesus changes everything, friends. He changes everything. Now, a note about that scripture passage up there. When you read that, by the way, here's some great advice that, that Jeff Van Vondering gives about that. He says, hey, do your own verse, right? So husbands, wives, children, parents, like, don't use these as ammo towards, you know, family members, like, hey, wife, you need to, right? It says this, and husband, it says this, or children. Don't do that. You, that is one surefire way to irritate people and alienate them from Scripture. Just, just don't worry about them. Do your own verse, right? Just do your own verse. That's just some practical one on that there. Now, let's skip ahead to another book, similar writing here, Ephesians chapter 5, and this will, we'll spend most of our time now. Um, we're going to get a little more detail, and Paul, again, he's riffing on these Roman household coats. <clears throat> here we go, another fun one, ready? Wives, verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do unto the Lord. So there it is, but wait, it gets heavier in this one. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. And then skip down to verse 25. There's a long passage for husbands there, and we'll just read for now the opening verse. He says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, um, who here has heard this passage before? Some of us have heard this? Okay. Um, what's really interesting for me to, to notice is how this gets read by people with a really narrow focus. Okay, so first of all, verse 22, the wives submit to your husband's verse, the word submit isn't even in that verse, right? The actual Greek translation is wives to your husbands as unto the Lord. That's the literal reading of the verse. So where'd that whole submit part come from? Don't worry, it's, it's, it's kind of in there. But, but, but like all good Bible students, we have to look up the context, right? We have to back up a verse, and then we see in verse 21 something that I think changes the whole passage. Verse 21, before wives submit to your husbands, husband loves your wives. Before it, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands as unto the Lord. See, we have to read the whole passage together. In fact, it was meant to be read together. That's part of why the word submit was left out of the wife instruction, I think, is so that we would make sure that we tie it all together. The first thing that's said to everybody is submit to one another. 
See, we have to read the whole thing together. What's really interesting, and again, um, the ESV is very popular with some people, uh, they actually stick a little heading in the middle of those two verses to separate them, and it's like rules for Christian households or something like that, uh, between submit to one another. Okay, rules for Christian households. Women submit, right? It's, it's, it's really odd to me. Um, but again, this is meant to be read together. Submit to one another. And we do it out of what? Out of love, out of reverence for Christ. And so we go, well, what does that mean? What does reverence for Christ mean? Well, I think it means that we look at how Jesus lived, how he loved, that it was all about power under, not about power over, and out of reverence and amazement for how he showed us to live. We follow his example. We live the same way. See, husbands and wives are supposed to be in mutual submission to each other. It's like a dance where and we're not trying to get on top all the time and win, but we are looking for ways to encourage and come under and support each other. And what an incredibly subversive idea in light of those Roman household codes, right? Think about that culture. Some people are like, well, they were just trying to accommodate the culture. I'm like, no, it sounds to me like they were pointing to something different than the man being the center. They were saying, hey, this is about Jesus. And so however we read the rest of this passage, the heading under which all of this stuff falls is what? Submit to one another. Now, a little side note here. Does, does that mean if you're a wife that you're going to have to do everything that your husband says without question, uh, even if it violates God's law or was abusive? <clears throat> no, thank you. Okay, the answer there would be no, no. That's the correct answer. See, the Bible's really clear all through Scripture that our ultimate allegiance is to God and God alone. And so Paul's point here is that, that any time you offer authentic love and servanthood to another person, do it as you were doing it unto the Lord, as you were doing it unto God. So this is not, by the way, carte blanche for husbands or wives, by the way, to use um, demand or to insist, or to force their way. And this does not excuse abuse, ever, ever, ever. Now let's move on to verse 23, which again, some tend to be men, use as more proof that women are to follow the lead of men in all things. Verse 22, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also should wives submit to their husbands in everything. So um, uh, I have a friend that um, he likes to say about this verse, he and his wife say, all right, fine, and this one, the head, uh, the man, he says, the man may be the head of the household, but the truth is the woman is the neck, and she can turn the head whichever way she pleases, right? <clears throat> the wise man. Now, the first thing about this passage is, again, we have to interpret this in context. See, head does not mean the boss. Like in our day, in our culture, we read this with our version of corporate structure or with government. We look at it as, as hierarchy, like an org chart. That's what head would mean, and it means that in our culture, right? And there are theologians that see it that way, too. They translate head to mean authority, and then they use this verse to reinforce a male hierarchy. But the word for head is also translated in many places as the word source. Source. So head is actually means source, which makes way more sense to me now because it takes us back to that Genesis passage, right? Back to the beginning. It takes us back before the fall. 
to where God's intent was men and women together as co-equals before the curse. And in the Genesis 2 account of of creation, um, the creation of Eve, remember, she is taken from Adam's side, from his rib. So that's the source that she was taken out of man, is what Adam said in his poem. And so again, there's great debate about this. People, how do we translate this one? Does head mean the source, or does it mean, you know, the source like as in Adam's rib, or does it mean like authority, which is Usually, honestly, what men who are already convinced that they need to be the boss, that's what they usually teach, but I I digress there. Um, And what I want to point out here is this. How does Paul spell it out as he talks about the husband's role as the head or the source? Like, how does he spell it out? If we look here at verse 25 and following, um, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and then notice this phrase, and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Doesn't sound like the boss yet. Uh, Let's skip down to verse 28. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, which makes sense because the two are one. After all, people have never hated their own bodies Apparently, they weren't as fat back then as I am now, but okay, they feed and care for them. Yes, I I do that. Um, But just as Christ cares for the church, verse 30, for we are members of his body. And then, look at the quote here. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Again, you see the allusion here to Adam and Eve? Again, I go, well, that's got to be what the source thing is pointing back to. In verse 33, however, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, Paul defines husbandly love. He doesn't say men and women are the same, okay? He doesn't say that. Um, He defines it in terms of sacrificial self-giving, like Jesus did, where he gave up his comfort, his convenience, his status, his own desires. I mean, remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was sent to the cross, he prays, not my will, but your will be done. He gives all that up, not my will. And ultimately, Christ gives up his life, and Paul says, husbands, be like that. Be like that. Now, Listen, guys, I'm, I'm trying to honestly reconcile the text of scriptures to understand what they meant back then and then how we apply them today. And really, I'll just be honest, <laughs> I think it would be way easier to embrace the whole hierarchy thing, right? It would just be easier. Ah, yep, the men are in charge. The Bible says that's how it works, right? And, and I wrestle with this stuff, especially even though I believe differently that men and women are equal in this and that we do mutual submission is how it works, but I still wrestle with this, especially as a flawed, imperfect husband. I wrestle with this as a guy who sometimes has control issues. I mean, I like being the boss. I like being in charge. But the problem is, as a follower of Jesus, it's not about being in charge, It's never about being the boss. It's about following the example and the teaching of Jesus, which means if I want to call myself a follower of Jesus, it means, Doug, you got to lay down your life. You got to lay down your life for your wife, for your kids. And Doug, it's not about being the boss in the kingdom of God. 
not even just the boss at home. Like, it's not about being the boss. Um, lay down your life for your staff here at church, uh, for the team of people that have called you to lead here at Hope. Which, again, by the way, it doesn't mean that we're going to be doormats and we're going to strive to be people pleasers. In fact, it means quite the opposite. See, I lay down my need to people please. I lay down my need to be the perfect pastor, to, to juggle a list of consumeristic demands others put on me. I lay that down. But I lay that down not to just to preserve my life, but out of love for everyone around me. And honestly, especially in a culture where I have a position of privilege, right? Um, as a white, middle-aged American male, it's a position of privilege. I'm not trying to make us feel guilty about it. It just is. For me, one of the challenges of that is learning to choose to lay down my life. To lay down my life. I mean, back then, think about the, this being written in those Roman household codes. Uh, those codes were kept in, a, in place by Roman law. And so what Paul was writing here, this is a radical way to live. Because the law says, hey, you're the boss, you're the center. And Paul's saying, no, 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 lay it down. Lay it down just like Jesus. Power under love and serve. And it wasn't just radical back then, it's a radical way to live today as well, right? Whoa, 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 submit? <laughs> I will submit to no one. Okay, then you can't call yourself a follower of Jesus. See, because this is how we're supposed to do all relationships. According to the way of Jesus, modeled for us in that Philippians 2 passage that we read, that Jesus, in all his power of the universe, gave it all up, became a servant, laid down his life to show his love for us, to show us what true strength is. It's not about having power over, it's power under. That's how it's done. And so the Apostle Paul writes, submit to one another. So wives, yeah, do that for your husbands. And husbands, yeah, do that for your wives. And love and protect and don't use your cultural advantages or your physical strength over them. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want to wrap this up with... A <clears throat> A few thoughts here, um, just stuff that occurred to me as I was trying to unpack this and keep it shorter. Um, I want to touch on this first one. Uh, listen, tolerating violence and abuse, that's not biblical submission, okay? I want to make that really clear, and our AVA ministry could uh, talk a lot more about this, but I want to make it clear that nobody's confused about this, um, especially for people that haven't been around our church or maybe they're not familiar with our partnership of raising awareness about abuse and domestic violence. Listen, submission does not mean that somebody gets to treat you like a doormat or abuse you, male or female, okay? Male or female. Like, it does not honor God somehow for you to be treated that way. And if you allow someone to treat you that way, it's, it's bad for them as well. Because not only are they operating in ways that are destructive to you when they abuse you, it damages their own soul. And when they operate that way, it gives the enemy a foothold into their life. So for lots of reasons, don't just put up with it. Don't allow that garbage to continue. Get help. I mean, separate if needed. But abuse is damaging all around, and it does not please God for us to allow it to continue. 
So I wanted to make that one really crystal clear. Um, now, the, the next one is a little more practical, hopefully. Uh, okay, so how? So how does this whole biblical submission, this mutual submission thing, how does that, how does that work? Uh, because for some people, when they first consider this idea, it really messes with their categories. Believe me, it messed with all my assumptions, all my training, all the things that I thought as I was learning and growing uh, up and, and, and young man in my college and 20s. Um, that's a fairly practical question here, fairly common one, would be this one here. People ask, okay, who's the boss then, right? Who's the boss? How do we make decisions if the man's not the boss? How, how do we do this? And one pastor I heard said, hey, how do we make decisions? Okay, well, here's what we decided when we got married 40 years ago. He said, the husband's going to make all the big decisions, and all the wives are going to make all the little decisions. And then he added, in the 40 years of our being married, we have never come across a big decision yet. So... <laughs> But, but seriously, though, um, here, here's something that, that I want to see implemented. I would love to see this implemented everywhere um, in all of our relationships, that we would submit to each other's strengths, right? That we would protect each other's weaknesses. That's what trust is built like in good, healthy relationships where I recognize, oh, you're better at this than I am. All right, I'm gonna, okay, you got a little more influence in that area than I do. Um, and when somebody sees my weaknesses, they go, oh, yeah, Doug's terrible at that. We're, we're going we're gonna to keep him from having to, you know, say much or do much in that area. That's submitting to each other's strengths, protecting each other's weaknesses. Um, another idea is, hey, when you make decisions, do it together. Like, because working things out, this is huge. It helps us to grow and mature. Honestly, like marriage questions often tend to be along the lines of, well, what can I get out of this? Like, or, or, or how can I cope in this marriage? Instead of asking, you know, what are we building together? Or, or how can our marriage make us each more like Christ? Or, or, or how is my marriage forcing me to see the rough edges and some of my character flaws? Listen, it's not that God doesn't want our marriages to bring us deep satisfaction and happiness, but it's not primarily about happiness. See, marriage is bursting with, you know, opportunities for deeper spiritual growth. And when these challenges come along, we can miss those challenges if we're not asking the right questions and just trying to demand and insist on having our own way. Uh, another common question that gets asked uh, is this, okay, well, what if we get stuck? Then who gets to be the boss and decide? <clears throat> There's a few good ideas here from Dr. Gilbert Vilzekian in the book Beyond Sex Roles. Uh, he has four that I think are pretty good. He says, uh, you can take turns, okay? If you get stuck, you take turns. All right, well, we're stuck on this one. Um, we're trying to work it out, we're stuck. All right, you get to decide this time. That's one way to do it, probably not the best. Um, second one would be, who is strongest in the area that we're discussing? So that would be like submitting to each other's strengths. Okay, well, you get, you're a little better at the finances thing than I am, so we'll trust you on that one, right? Uh, a third one would be, um, who does that decision affect more, right? Who does it affect more? And you look at the impact. Let's say somebody's career is going to take them into a different job, and you're trying to decide, and that's going to affect them. It's going to affect both of you, but the impact's really going to be more on them. That might be, they might get a little more weight in this decision. If you guys can't agree, it's, it's not a bad way to do things. Good suggestion. Uh, I like his fourth suggestion the best. He says, listen, just pray and then wait for guidance. Pray and wait for guidance, because God will show up. He will show up, and he will help. 
All right, last thought here. Finally, um, some people feel really strongly about this stuff. And some people who, they just operate with this hierarchy thing. Um, and that's, I'm, I'm not down on those folks at all, okay? Um, I'm nervous when it gets promoted that this is the Bible way and that everybody needs to do it because I think we have to look at this from a broader perspective that isn't just always assuming uh, the male dominance. And there are so many men that fight for the hearts of women and equality and making sure that, that good things are happening and justice is done. So this is not a blanket statement at all uh, toward men. But some people operate in a marriage, uh, maybe your marriage, where there's kind of this marriage where you go, hey, you know what, it's worked really well for us to submit to the husband. That works in our family. I've heard stories of that firsthand. And here's the deal. When somebody tells me that, I believe them. I do. I believe them that that, that works for them. Because here's the deal. Submission works. Even when it's one way, it works. Like God, I think God honors that. Like God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble, Right? So submission, it does work. But what I'd want to say to those couples that are living it out that way and practicing that way, just imagine, what would happen? Like, how much better might your relationship and your marriage be if it were both ways, where you were submitting to each other? Like, like that would be amazing. And my friends, I think that would look like Jesus. Worship team, will you come? Again, friends, um, God's intent, his design from the beginning, before the fall, was, was that man and woman would be together, working together, loving one another. And like Jesus said, that the two become one, right? As one man, one woman, no options, leave and cleave, the two become one flesh, operating together, right? This is mutual submission, loving like Jesus loves. And in order to give that love away, my friends, we have to be full of the love of Jesus. We can't pour out of an emptiness something we don't have. And so we need to receive the love of God. And he gives it so, so freely. So one great place to start, because this is, this is a tall one if it's a shift for you in your marriage, one place to start is just to start making sure that you are being filled with the heart of God, with the love of God for you, so that you can give it away to your family, to the people around you, to your loved ones. Will you stand with me as we go to our closing song?